This is Pastor Clint Ribble, and you're listening to the Grace Point Church Podcast. For more information, please visit gracepoint.net. So the last uh, three weeks, last three weeks, we have been in a series called Turn You Northward, and we've been addressing those three seminal questions that Phyllis Tickle brought up when she was here a, a few months ago, and I thought they were three wonderful questions, questions that all people um, who take their spiritual journey seriously ask on a continual basis. But she she said when major epics happen in human history, especially in church history, these are three questions that we ask. And the three questions were, wherein lies authority by which we will think and decide and make decisions for our life and act out of? So wherein lies our authority? Second question was, what is the nature of humanity? She said, what is man? What's mankind? Um, who are we? What are we? And the third question we addressed uh, last week was, how then shall we live practically in light of our view of authority, in light of our view of humanity as people? How then shall we live? How does that affect our everyday life? Um, I spent some time last week, and I will put these up, and then we'll try to stimulate some conversation today, but on the question of authority, which really is the first question that affects all others, we talked about how practically church, a Christian church has always said, of course, God is the authority. God vested his authority incarnate in the person of Jesus. And then we spent two months here at Grace Point talking about how Jesus at the end of his life, really throughout his ministry, indicated that instead of God's voice being continually spoken through this incarnate fleshly experience of Jesus, Jesus went away, and Jesus said, if I go away, the Father's going to send another advocate. And in keeping with Trinitarian language, Jesus said, when the other advocate comes, you remember, the other advocate is the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit then indwells human beings, and human beings corporately together, filled with the Spirit, make up the body of Christ. So the body of Christ is the living Word of God, wherein the Word of God dwells. So we've talked about 2,000 years, how the church has essentially appropriated that presence of the Holy Spirit in our life, how the Holy Spirit has spoken to us. Because remember, in John 14 and John 16, Jesus said, when the Holy Spirit comes, He will lead and guide you into all truth. Interesting, uh, as Richard Edinger pointed out, to me in an email a few weeks ago, and I really thought a lot about it. He didn't say when the Holy Spirit comes, he'll immediately download all truth to you. He said all all truth is generally what we end up hearing, but the way he's going to do that's critically important. He's going to lead you and guide you. That indicates process, doesn't it? And the 2,000-year history of the church certainly indicates a process. Our reformations, our translations, our experiences with God over 2,000 years certainly doesn't show a static experience of God. But for 2,000 years, the church has been developing and been growing. Jesus said when the Holy Spirit comes, he'll lead and guide you into all truth. And then in John 16, this is the night before his crucifixion, uh, in John 16, he said, I have a lot of things I'd like to tell you, but you're not going to get the full message of Jesus in the Gospels or even in the incarnate life of Jesus. Jesus said, I have many things to tell you, but I'm going away, and I can't tell you these things now. You remember why he said he couldn't tell them the things that he wanted to tell them? Because they weren't ready. 
He said, you can't bear them. Well, that's a wonderful parent. Doesn't impose upon his children more than they can bear. But Jesus said, though I have many things to tell you that you can't bear now, John 16, he said, but when the Holy Spirit comes, he will teach you all things about me. And he said, the things that I've taught you are the things that I have heard from the Father, from God. So the way the Holy Spirit practically has mediated this message of truth to us, this leading, guiding process throughout the history of the church, um, we've categorized five ways. Some categorize them three ways, four ways, five ways. But these are the five mediums, Catholic, Protestant, traditional, progressive, liberal, conservative, uh, all Christians agree that these are kind of the five major voices through which God has spoken to us. And each one of them, for those of us from evangelical backgrounds, we think so scripturally. Uh, and I can tell you that each of these has many, many scriptures that corroborate this idea. Creation. God speaks to us through creation. Many of you have experienced that. Um, from my Wesleyan background, Wesleyan Pentecostal background, we were uh, quick to note that God also speaks through experience. Um, Bud, I appreciated your email this week. Bud, um, longtime Christian, 76 years old, said, you know, Scripture's always got an accountant's mind. That's what he's done. He said he likes Scripture, but like many of you, there's always kind of been this wrestling match with understanding outside of its context, Scripture. But he said, I've had many experiences with, experiences with God, and looking back, it's wonderful to know that those experiences can be trusted. Well, None of these things can be trusted in isolation, but they can be trusted in fellowship with one another. And Bud was talking about the experiences that he's had, and he knows, looking back, that the Holy Spirit, God has spoken to him through these experiences. Uh, and, and a lot of you, I mean, I don't know, I was talking to a professor friend of mine the other day about experiences, and I asked him, I said, how many really profound interactive experiences have you had with God that have been life-shaping for you? And he thought for a minute, he's about, he's about 70 years old, he said, two. But he said, those two were so meaningful that they marked me forever. You know, we're not talking about incidental things that can possibly be interpreted, but two profound experiences. And I would say at 46, 30 years in ministry, I could point to three where I feel like God came to me in such an uninterrupted, unmediated way. And D, I don't even tell the stories because some stories are so precious to you, you don't even want to subject them to other people's scrutiny. Remember when the angel told Mary, he said, you're pregnant by the Holy Spirit with the Messiah. And he said, just ponder these things in your heart. Anybody here like that, you have some experiences that are so profound, they weren't for anybody else, they were for you, and you don't, they're so holy, you don't want to subject them to other people's scrutiny. It's not about convincing anybody else. God came to me. Well, those things are very, very real, and I would encourage you, if you've never had those experiences, don't feel bad. You may have had them and didn't even know that you were having them, um, but keep the door of your heart open for that kind of thing. And then, of course, there is tradition, there's a lot to say about tradition. Um, Clark Meyer sent me a good email about tradition. Uh, Clark pointed out that tradition historically in the church refers to those things that are non-biblically carried along. And that's true. That's a part of tradition. That's a very Catholic idea of tradition. When I was talking about tradition last week, I was talking about a more overall Christian view of tradition. But from a Catholic perspective, 
there is what is referred to as sacred tradition. And sacred tradition was those things that the early church fathers believed were handed on to the church through the apostles that weren't written down in Scripture. And they had ideas that they couldn't directly point to in Scripture. They believed were justified by Scripture. Um, most of them had to do with how the sacraments were appropriated, how people were baptized, that kind of thing. But sacred tradition, or it was called a rule of faith. Some even called it a deposit of faith. And I just want to say this about that very uh, Roman Catholic Orthodox idea of tradition. They received that from the Jewish people because the Jewish people believed in an oral Torah and a written Torah. Jesus talked about the oral Torah and the written Torah. The Jewish family believed that there was a written Torah, which is the one that we associate with, the one that was written down. But the Jewish people also believed from earliest days that there was an oral Torah that Moses communi communicated some things to Joshua verbally, and those things were passed down through the years. So this idea, the Catholic idea of tradition, is very, very much Jewish in oral written sense. And then, of course, the one that I've grown up with and the one that I probably have loved and given most attention to as an evangelical and as a preacher is Scripture. And then we've got the biggie of reason. So these are the five voices. And we asked the question last week, which one is, uh, which one is, what's the word? Prime. Which one is prime or how about primary? Which of these is the primary voice? And uh, I'm, I, I contend that all five of these um, serve as mediums through which the Holy Spirit speaks, and I don't think there's any reason to make one of them the primary trumper of the others. Someone said, what happens if they contradict one another? Well, that's the, that's the text that we were looking at last week, and I want to go back to it before we open up for questions. Uh, Acts 11, 1 through 18, and I want you to look at this with me. Remember last week when we were talking about the experience when the Gentiles were included in the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts? And in Acts 10, we literally had God giving Peter a vision and telling him to rise and unclean and, and eat unclean animals. And you remember why the animals were unclean. What said the animals were unclean? Scripture. So the Levitical Scripture said these animals are unclean, and yet Peter in Acts 10 is having an experience that's telling him to eat these unclean animals. And there's dissonance there. You know, I, my, my reading of Scripture says one thing, my experience is telling me another. Peter was dubious to it. The whole thing ended up being about the inclusion of the Gentiles. Peter gets past the vision, and he goes and he meets with a Gentile man named Cornelius, and Peter and his fellow circumcised believers, circumcised believers, who had understood Scripture one way, see Cornelius and his household filled with the Holy Spirit, and it's inarguable for them. So their experience begins to shape their idea, and their experience now is contrary to the way they had interpreted Scripture. Well, the sto story continues in Acts 11. I just want to read this really quickly. Peter goes back and reports the experience to the uh, head fellows in Jerusalem. 
Now the apostles and the believers who were in Judea heard that the Gentiles had also accepted the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcised believers criticized him, saying, why did you go to uncircumcised men and eat with them? Then Peter began to explain it to them step by step, saying, I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision. There was something like a large sheet coming down from heaven being lowered by its four corners. It came close to me. As I looked at it closely, I saw four-footed animals, beasts of prey, reptiles, and birds of the air. I also heard a voice saying to me, get up, Peter, kill and eat. But I replied, by no means, Lord, for nothing, pro nothing profane or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But a second time, the voice answered. All of these are experiences. The voice answered from heaven, and it's God's voice. That's the word of God. Anytime God speaks, that's the word of God. But a second time, the voice answered from heaven. What God has made clean, you must not call profane. This happened three times. Then everything was pulled up again to heaven. At that very moment, three men sent to me from Caesarea arrived at the house where we were. The Spirit told me, the Spirit told me, and the Spirit can tell you through many channels, the Spirit told me through a direct experience. Anybody ever felt like the Spirit told you something through creation? Anybody ever felt like it told you something through experience? Anybody ever heard the Spirit speak through tradition? Anybody ever heard Spirit speak through Scripture? Reason? Well, the Spirit spoke to me and told me to go with them and not to make a distinction between them and us. Distinctions that I had made because of my interpretation of this. These six brothers also accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. He told us how he had seen the angels standing in his house and saying, send to Joppa and bring Simon, who's called Peter. Now watch. He will give you a message by which you and your entire household will be saved. And as I began to speak the Holy Spirit fell upon them. I mean, I'm, I, I've still got some trepidation, and God goes around my trepidation and does God's work. The Holy Spirit fell upon them just as it had upon us at the beginning. He's appealing now to the experience that the apostles who criticized him had back in Acts 2. So the Holy Spirit fell on us just on them as it had us on us at the beginning, and I remember the word of the Lord how he had said, what's the word of the Lord? Well, it's the words that Jesus spoke to them when he was with them. How he had said, John baptized with water, but you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave them the same gift that he gave us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could hinder God? When they heard this, they were silenced. And they praised God saying, then God has given even to the Gentiles the repentance that leads to life. I said last week, and this is where I'll end this, I just want to read you a quick reflection on this. Someone said, well, are you saying then that experience becomes primary over scripture, reason, tradition, and creation? Not at all. Not at all. This is my reflection. This doesn't mean experience is the premier voice. This does not mean that experience now becomes the primary voice taking the lead in all cases. This was not reason and tradition, reason and tradition and scripture and creation being shot down by experience. This was not experience as an overall category or vessel taking a primary position over the others. But in this moment, in that moment, that's all we're saying. 
It's all scripture saying. But in that moment, their sense of experience, their sense even of reason, in that moment, this is not a ubiquitous universalizing, but in that moment, their sense of experience was stronger and seemed more reliable than their sense of Scripture. I didn't say experience is more reliable than Scripture. I said in that moment, their sense of and their interpretation of experience, I don't know any other way to say it, but they were objecting on these grounds and the Bible said they gave in on these grounds. Because in that moment, the one that trumps is the one we feel most confident we are interpreting clearest in the moment. And this is an important, vital point to make. With all of these vessels, vehicles, mediums of God's voice, here's the deal. We have to interpret them. These are not simply direct pipelines. They have to come through our interpretation. With all of these mediums, we have to interpret them. And at this moment, they felt more confident in their interpretation of experience than they did in their interpretation of Scripture. Well, now that makes all the sense in the world to me. Do you know who these people were? You know one of the pillars of the church that was criticizing as a circumcised believer? You know who he was? His name was James. You know whose brother James was? Jesus. And a year or so before, they had come to James reporting to him about the ministry of Jesus, and James had gone to his brother and said, you're crazy, you need to come home and quit stirring things up. And Scripture said even his brothers and sisters didn't believe in him. James was a devout Jewish man. James now recognized that he, like many people, had read Scripture and not been able to see Jesus. Think about only weeks before this group of people. Jesus is saying, I've got to go to Jerusalem and die. And he's even saying, the prophets have always said this. And his own disciples, good Jewish men, are saying, that's not what the Bible says. They knew and had a reasonable humility. They had plenty of reason to be quite humble as it regarded the reading, interpretation, and understanding of Scripture. This moment is not a demotion of Scripture, or for that matter, any of the vessels. It's simply a promotion of humility and wisdom. No one of these replaces the other. But no one of these has such a complete franchise. Do you know what it means when one of these gets the primary franchise on the voice of God? It shuts down the multitude of counsel in which there's wisdom and safety. And the second thing that I wanted to say is I want you to notice that this text doesn't only address the question of wherein lies authority. It lies in, all, it lies in God who mediates through these. But this particular text also addresses how then shall we live in relation to in relation to what is humanity. This story addresses both issues. 
It beautifully addresses the practicum of the second question, who are human beings? Because Holy Spirit-filled people, circumcised Christian believers, were seeking God's wisdom on how they were to treat another people group who happened to be Gentiles, a group that they felt not only did they have the right to ostracize, but they had the spiritual obligation to withhold the gospel from them. How then shall we live in relation to authority and in relation to who are human beings is addressed beautifully in the Acts 11 chapter. So that's where I wanted to finish up and I wanted to open it up, take 20 or 25 minutes and hear from you. What questions? And, and questions come in many forms. You know, questions can come in, okay, what's all of that mean practically to... Um, tell me more about that, or I'm not sure I'm tracking with you there, Stan. Uh, what questions do you have about authority, uh, nature of humans, or how then shall we live? I've addressed probably authority more than the other three, but are there questions on your mind? If you don't feel too brave here, you send a lot of them to me via email. We can go to some of them, but I wonder if something's pressing right now in relation to this. And if it's pressing on you, I bet it's pressing on somebody else. So are there questions or comments even about all of this? Go, Clark. Bring a microphone over, Clark. Clark's the one that pointed out to me about uh, tradition, the distinguishing between the idea of tradition. Uh, this particular example that you're using was an Old Testament scripture which kept the Gentiles out and was being corrected. And I, I don't see that you can take that as a principle across the board in New Testament scripture. Does New Testament, New, does New Testament scripture contradict New Testament scripture? Is New Testament scripture ever subject to this? All right, let's talk about that. Did the early Christian church have an idea of Old Testament and New Testament scripture? Was there a distinguishing of Old Testament and New Testament scripture in the early church? There was not. The distinction that Clark just made is a very reasonable one for people like us because we've had these big Bibles that have an Old Testament and a New Testament. But the principle is not, there's no distinguishing even in the biblical text between the 39 back there and the 27 over here. What was the Bible of Jesus? What we call the Old Testament. What did Paul refer to and Peter refer to as holy writ or sacred scripture? What we call the Old Testament. So I can't find a distinguishing line. Now the inner Clark brings up an, an important point. So I, I don't, I don't, I, I don't see two different principles at work. This is the way Jesus addressed Scripture. The question that Clark brought up is a really good one because their experience was telling them to do something that was not only a reinterpretation of Scripture, but it really was a contradiction of Scripture. We all, right, we're all subject to saying, okay, maybe I've interpreted the text wrong. We rarely say, if ever, no, I've interpreted the text properly. We're just not supposed to do that anymore, right? Okay. Because their problem was not that they were interpreting Scripture wrong. 
Scripture said don't eat these animals. Folks, Scripture said don't eat these animals. God didn't say to Peter, y'all been reading that wrong for a thousand years. God essentially said, give you that. But since I wrote the book, if Scripture said don't eat the animals, and now God's saying eat the animals, is that a contradiction or a timely shift? Is there the ability of Scripture in multiple contexts to shift in its propositional command of us? That's the question. Are there moments that Scriptures will mean something else to a new context than it meant to a prior context? Yes, as it relates to what Clark said is Old Testament Scripture. But what about the 27 books? Is there a new principle? Well, 1 Corinthians 11 said if a woman comes into church, she should not pray with her head uncovered. Ladies, women can say, but 1 Corinthians 11 said women's hair can be that covering. You got me. And Paul goes on to say, for that reason, a woman should not cut her hair. And if she cuts it, it's the same as if she cut it all off. And we know it's a shame for a woman to cut her hair all off. Why do you ladies cut your hair? And why are you not wearing coverings in church? First Corinthians 11, which is not one of the 39. It's one of the 27 New Testament context. So there is the ability of God to not contradict but contextualize scriptures. And I, I want to say this. Somebody said, well, that's a, that's a, you know, that's, that's kind of subjective. Absolutely. But I don't know a church, whether it's Church of Christ, Baptist, or Methodist, who does not contextualize some scripture. We all contextualize it where it's convenient to us. And I'm just calling for a more um, consistent hermeneutic on that. First um, Corinthians 11 says that women shouldn't cut their hair, and First Corinthians 11 says it's a shame for a man to have long hair. Somebody said, well, that's context, obviously. Is there, is there purple highlighting in the New Testament that says, okay, anything you read that's purple is to be contextualized? Paul didn't say that was contextual. Paul said nature teaches you that a man shouldn't have long hair. Nature, not Corinth. Nature teaches you that. That's the same chapter that says the head of every woman is man, the head of man is Christ, and the head of Christ is God. We have the hierarchy. Which parts are contextual? Which parts are timeless truth? I can tell you this. How would they know that no longer did the eating of particular kosher meats matter? I'll tell you the only way they could know is if God told them. And God did tell them through an experience, not a reinterpretation of Scripture. And that's challenging. That's why I would say you need all of these in community and conversation because any of these at any moment can go rogue and claim the full right of God's voice. 
And we don't want any of them going rogue. And by the way, not only can these go rogue by themselves, but an individual person can go rogue with this concoction and do their own thing. But we never believe that scripture is of private interpretation. We believe in the safety of a community that's bigger than one church. And that's the body of Christ. It was a great question, but the principle applies because I don't think there's a distinction between what's Old Testament and New Testament. Jesus and the early church called what we call the Old Testament scripture. So we will come up against contextualizations. Um, that's why I always quote 1 Peter 2, slaves be subject to your masters even if they beat you without cause, for to this you were called. That takes some contextualizing and interpreting, doesn't it? But the Holy Spirit can help us. And I'll tell you where the Holy Spirit got through to the Christian church on slavery. It was not here. It was here and here. And in the age of reason, the age of enlightenment, mixed together with our experience of these human beings, we were corrected. Turns out our interpretation of Scripture was remiss after 1,800 years. Other questions? Great question. Great, great question. Other questions? Um, yes. So what would you say the practical implications for the 21st century in America are then? Off of that. I'm sorry, I didn't understand that. Uh, what would you say the practical implications are for the United States in the 21st century? Well, in, you know, in terms of the United States, I mean, there's always the question of authority, separation of church and state, you know, wherein, how does God practically apply to the governing of a nation? That's a, that's a big question that we've been wrestling around for years. I grew up in a system that wrapped the flag around the cross, and somehow the United States was God's capital city. So the question of authority is a big one, perhaps for another day. Um, in the United, are you talking about the United States or the Christian church in the West? Yeah, I thought that's what you were talking You're talking about the Christian church in the West. Um, in terms of authority, you know, I, I think that's, that's kind of been explained um, over and over and over. I think the, que the question of what is mankind, we always have the question of the other. And I think the chief question of the other is how do we treat our neighbor? Brian McLaren was talking about that, neighbor. How do we treat our neighbor? And I think the um, ethic of Jesus was how do we treat our enemy? And I think in the Christian church in America, I think the major, the major, major question before the Christian church today, um, in terms of the other, the neighbor, the enemy, I think we are always going to have to be considering minority, the minorities. And I, I think obviously race, gender, and I think, of course, the biggie that's in front of the 21st, church, 21st century church is sexual orientation. And our church has been wrestling with that one face on for the last two years. And it's the hardest wrestling match um, that I've experienced the church going through. So practically, I think this is where it lands for the church 
Who's the other? Who's the neighbor? Who's the enemy? How do we treat them? What does inclusion mean? What is being faithful to the text? I mean, I don't think there's any getting around that. Other questions? I mean, that's, that's my opinion. I'm just a commentator on the issue, but that's living on the ground with Christian people. That's where it goes every time. Um, the big question in the evangelical church is what do we do with the LGBT community and what do we do with the Bible? And we're living with a group of people. I want to say this on behalf of the uh, traditional conservative church. I don't sense the church is filled up with a bunch of homophobic people personally. I feel like I know a lot of people who are against homosexuality from a theoretical perspective that love gay people more than gay people do. Everybody that thinks homosexuality is wrong is not a gay hater. But they feel a strong obligation to interpret the Bible and be true to the tradition of the church 2,000 years old. And what's happening is an incredible amount of dissonance in them. Because this is kicking in, and as more and more people are true to their experiences, you know, we have to live with our daughters, our sons, our nephews, our brothers. And there is a holy war on right now between what we think about Scripture is God letting down a net and saying, this is not unclean? I mean, what he said to Peter was, don't you call unclean what I have called clean. Interestingly, he's talking about a Leviticus text, which is where the condemnation of homosexuality as an abomination centers. It's just interesting right now, um, you know, the question before the church is, is God looking at this group of people in a blanket, in a net, being let down, and we're saying, we can't know because Scripture, and God says, don't call an abomination what I have called clean. That's the question before the church. I can't settle that for you, but that... I don't think there's any one bigger right now in the 21st century for the church than that one. And um, all right, other questions. And I don't want the whole conversation to get hijacked on that one issue. It's so inflammatory. We've spent two years on it. There's no avoiding it. And we're not avoiding it here, but it's a biggie. That's the tension right now. Uh, Richard. You've got lots of circles around experience, tradition, scripture, and reason. You've only got one circle around creation. Yeah, this is kind of the new that kid on the block. That doesn't catch on. I can see the other four. The poet in me gets sort of lost in the creation one. Well, expand on that piece. Expand on, say again what I'm supposed to expand on? The poet in me sort of thinks, okay, I can see God and know God through creation, but it's not as tangible as experience, yeah. tradition, scripture, or reason. For just me. as a show of hands, just to kind of get the temperature of personality in this room. I'm not saying which one you think is primary. I want you to think. Which of these, thinking back on your own relationship with God, I'm using uh, John Trent, love languages. Which of these love languages has been most effective for you in your life? Great love languages. 
Which, not which one is best overall for the community, but for you. Could you think about that for just a second? I'll start, I'll start here. Show of hands, creation relating to nature has been the most effective way of all that God has communicated with you. Anybody here would vote for creation. Okay, hold them up. We got about, huh? We had three pastors. We'll have to talk about this Tuesday at staff, or Wednesday at staff meeting. Um, we just had about 20. You didn't say it was better than these. You said for you, experience. Holy mackerel, you heretics. We, we just had about 60. Tradition. We had about a half dozen on tradition. I would take that one's vying for top spot with me. Not, not the Catholic idea, but the accumulated wisdom of the church. Scripture, chief way. We get about 25. Reason. I'm left brain. I love math. I drive down the road counting post. Every time I say a phrase, I have a tabulator in my head counting how many syllables I just used in that phrase, and it bothers me whether it was even or odd. Weird, I know. I can't help it. I've never told anybody that. Don't tell anybody what I just told you. My brain works that way. This one for me. Reason, how many? Um, yeah, another 20 or so. See what just happened. So, I mean... All of them have a pretty strong, have a pretty strong voice. You know what is difficult for me on this is every, the pie doesn't divide perfectly with space between. These all overlap. One of my most profound experiences I ever had with God was as I was reading scripture. I, as, as science teaches us, it teaches us lots of things about creation, doesn't it? See how they all overlap? These are not enemies. They're not in tension with one another. Um, they're all overlapping. Richard, I don't know that I addressed your question because I got sidetracked with a vote, but that's interesting. It's an interesting array. Other questions or comments. Bud, M Mel's going to bring you the microphone, bud. I don't necessarily have a question. I just have a comment. Uh, when I sent that email to you last night, I always let my uh, secretary or wife <laughs> go ahead and say it, bud. Free, boss, my boss. Proofread it, proofread everything and tell me whether I was right or wrong. So anyway, <laughs> after, after that happened, uh, she did point out to me something very, uh, that I'd kind of forgotten about in tradition. 
And I grew up in First Christian Church in Tullahoma, Tennessee. And uh, we did have our tradition and way of doing things. And, uh, and of course, since then, I have gone to many different kind of churches and uh, seen their traditions, and they're all, you know, everybody's different. Uh, and I don't understand why they do some of the things they do. But anyway, that doesn't make me right and doesn't make them right. And uh, so I think the bottom line is that all of these things work together. But in God's eyes, what really matters is what's in our heart. <laughs> and uh, and we can get stuff in the heart from all of this. And this is what this is my reasoning. <laughs> so uh, that's all I have. Yeah, yeah. A seventy-six-year-old elder in the church just reasoned. What he said reminded me, Luke, of the question you sent in. Luke said, why does it seem the Spirit is leading some people to think one thing and others to think something else, often contradictory? You do realize that the Methodist Church here, the Nazarene Church there, the Baptist Church here, and the Heinz 57 here, you do realize we are all claiming to follow the Holy Spirit, right? So the question in most people's mind is, if the Holy Spirit's leading, why is the Holy Spirit leading people to different conclusions? Well, I want you to know that when the Holy Spirit speaks, it always speaks as is any spoken word through a filter. These mediums are not the only filter through which God speaks. God also speaks through the filters of my ear, my sociology, my psychology, my anthropology, my human life. And the ultimate filter is not just creation, experience, tradition, scripture, and reason. The ultimate filter is my interpretation. So when Luke asked the question, it's a bit tongue-in-cheek, why do people, why does God say two different things contradictory to two different people and both claim God said it? Because both of them were interpreting. The frailty doesn't lie. There is no frailty here. There is partial frailty in the constructs, the mediums, the microphones. But there is enormous frailty in the interpreter. That's you. That's me. When people say you just need to follow your conscience, it's the voice of the Holy Spirit. Not, not true from my perspective. My conscience is not the voice of the Holy Spirit. My conscience is my best effort to interpret what I think the Holy Spirit is saying. People follow their consciences sincerely to very wrong ends. Your conscience is not the pure voice of the Holy Spirit. It's your best effort to interpret what the Holy Spirit is saying. 
And can we give the benefit of that? What Bud said, the most important thing is in the heart. Can we give every time our interpretation is different? This is what we do. If my interpretation is different than yours, I'm reasonable enough to know God's not saying two contradictory things. So you know what I do? I nix your interpretation and I take franchise of the particular medium we're agreeing on and in doing so, I claim God for me and not for you. Can we not give, instead of Xing one another, can we not give the benefit of the doubt that not only, did you know when somebody disagrees with you, it might mean you're wrong? Our initial response to somebody disagreeing is we take franchise and we nix. The reality is, someone said, well, that's relativism. You've heard this illustration I've given before, but they say that's relativism to Bud's point about the heart. I don't think there's a God somewhere who doesn't know what two plus two equals. I think there is objective truth and God knows what is the ultimate truth on all matters. But I'm not God. I am, at best, an interpreter of God. And I interpret through these things. But I see a bunch of people sitting around a table, and one person says 2 plus 2 equals 5, and another person says it equals 7, and another person says it equals 73. Relativism says God comes down to that table and says, what are y'all doing? And they say, we're doing math. Well, what's the problem? We're wondering what two plus two is. And God says, what do you think? One says five, one says seven, one says 73. Relativism says God says, good news, you're all right. Well, that's crazy. I figure if there's a God, God knows what two plus two equals. I think that God comes down and I don't think God says, well, bad news you're all going to be tortured forever because you're wrong. And the one who's close to right is just as bad off as the one who's a long way off. I actually think God comes down and says, I just want to be honest with you, it doesn't equal 5, 7, or 73. And I want to be honest with you, some are closer than others. But I want to tell you what really counts to me is that you're sincerely bellied up to this table doing math. And that counts with me. And I'm glad you're here. And I can work with that. That's the heart. And if me who's saying five and the person who's saying 73 can look across the table and say, probably to some degree we're both wrong, bring some measure of humility to that. You know what might be augmented? And if we can respectfully experience these together at a table driven by sincerity more than accuracy? Read the Sermon on the Mount. What's he more concerned about, heart or accuracy? Follow Jesus around. What's he more concerned about, right doctrine or right hearts, attitudes, and motives? If we can bring the right heart, attitude, and motive, this this can be a profoundly different experience for us. And if it is, then I suppose that will become a different experience for us as well. Um,
One more burning question. Harry, last one. I guess the, the thing that's been getting me as you've been going through this uh, series here. Uh, the thing that's been what? The thing that's sort of getting my, just getting my head is the scripture. We talk about scripture. That's the foundation for me. It has been. Uh, as, as you know, um, I've been a Christian far less than most people in this room. I didn't become a Christian until I was 59. And it was through reading and trying to understand uh, the Bible and, and, and other related uh, scripture. But that base he has to be, uh, for, for me anyway, what drives how I look at all these other things up there. Um, uh, there's a lot of things I've done in my life uh, I certainly would not do if I had become a Christian much earlier in my life. Uh, I probably would have become a pacifist and, and not become part of the genocide that was Vietnam, uh, an active participant in that. So for me, uh, Scripture is strong. It's the base. It is exactly uh, because without that, all these other things can be interpreted in a very different way. Without that scripture, uh, my, how I look at creation, experience, my reasoning is all very different, and the directions I will take in life are different. And what it means to me anyway is uh, I am at peace now, uh, as that, uh, the hymn says. Uh, it is well with my soul. It is now well with my soul more because of the scripture and what I've learned from that than from all these others. Yep, I think what Harry just said is entirely appropriate because of two words he kept repeating. And he was careful to repeat them four times. He didn't say for you because he recognized that each of these got significant votes. And most of you, whichever one of these you voted for, would say, the others have to come through this for me. Harry voted for Scripture and was one of 25 who did. And there is nothing wrong with you looking back on your experience and saying exactly what he did for me. I can tell you for me, this is foundational, not contradictory. We make a bad mistake when we stand up and look at all of this and say, I'm going to tell you. And he said, for me, and we all have that testimony and we cannot impose it on another. And when we live here instead of here, we will build that a whole lot better and God will come through a whole lot more clearly. Amen? Amen. For me is a great, great phrase. And all of you have your for me, but in your for me, don't forget all. Pastor Stan, I think that what makes your experience with God alive is through scripture, right? And the more you see of creation, the more you experience, the more tradition you have, the more reason you have, the more the scriptures come alive. So 
I kind of separate scripture. There's, there's no either or, is there? All of these, that's a, that's a great point. All of these are so intertwined, there's no separating them. I mean, wouldn't you, has anybody ever had what you would call an experience with God, creation? I've had three what I think are direct experiences where God came. In my 46 years, three times God walked up to me. One of them was as I was sitting with Scripture. These aren't either or. These are absolutely overlapping, intertwined mediums through which God speaks. Other questions about these things? Any, any, that was a great question and a, a great point. They are intertwined. Read. I was wondering if you could go over a little deeper the issue of community. Um, all of us in this room would have, a di have different experiences. We reason things differently. Our traditions are often different. Um, but I'm still a little bit confused on, on the role of community and um, how that collective wisdom of the crowd plays into this. The church very early, when we talk about community, we're talking about the body of Christ. Um, specifically in this context, there are other communities, but the body of Christ. The church taught, per Paul, that together we are the body of Christ. So the church localized authority in Jesus. Jesus, through the Holy Spirit, replaced himself on earth with the body of Christ. Paul said, you stand in Christ's stead. So the church very early put authority in the life of the church. Now, is that cardinals, popes, preachers, elders, or is that the broader community of faith? John 1 says, in the beginning was the word. And you remember, you, you want to talk about the word? You want to get down to what is the word of God? John said, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God, and the word was made what? flesh and dwelt among us. And Jesus, through the Holy Spirit, put the body of Christ in his stead. So the living word of God rests in the body of Christ, the flesh of God. I mean, that's, that's the church's position. So authority rests. So that's why Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 14, let all prophesy, let the others judge. That's why in Acts 15, when important decisions were made, Peter, Paul, James, John, people who disagreed came together and they said, it seemed good to us and the Holy Spirit. Two important words, us and the Holy Spirit. It seemed good to us, not me. The church never from the beginning has made decisions in the I and me. It's always been the living word of God that exists in the body of Christ for all can prophesy and the others can judge. Not just in a room like this, but in all times, all saints, all places. It's a communion of saints. That's what we mean when we mean community. So nobody needs to pick one of these as the franchise and nobody needs to become the isolated franchisee of the voice of God we have to sit, Methodists, Baptists, Catholics, Presbyterians. That's why it's very important, this ecumenical move um, that's happening in the church. We are way too divided. We need one another, and we need to be hearing from one another. That's, that's the community we're talking about. Uh, Dan Waltz asked me in an email. He said, with the knowledge 
of this. And, and this, this is not just a grace point. You could go to Clearview Baptist or Christ United Methodist, and I, I think there would be a breakdown if it were presented fairly. Dan said, does this change the church's role or the pastor's role in the life of the church? Well, I, I don't think it takes anything away from what I do here, and you guys know what I do here and how I love this. I, I do think, Dan, it causes me to elevate and emphasize because I'm sitting here looking at 300 adults and 25 of you just told me this is your love language. And if that's the only love language I ever talk about, stimulate and facilitate, what kind of a leader am I? You just told me something here, didn't you? That's why I love the Pentecostal uh, side of things because I preach with passion and I talk about experiences. That's why Jesus didn't just let it be dry, wrote. It wasn't just counting signposts like I do logically in my brain. He told stories and parables, brought emotion into it. Other questions I could go on and on. Lisa. <clears throat> well, I also grew up Pentecostal. Pentecostal, not Pentecostal, Pentecostal. Sorry. Yeah, that's the, that's the real deal. I know, I know real ones when they say it that way. Right. And having never had it explained to me in this way, certainly you know that, Stan. Um, I am sitting here looking at these five things and without even consciously thinking about it, see periods in my life where reason played the biggest part, where tradition played the biggest part where creation played the biggest part. Mm -hmm. And I'm just so thankful that God has opened me up to, to all five of those. And that I think as a congregation, as a community, um, it will benefit us all to be open to all five of these, even though for some scripture certainly is most important now. But what about next week? What about next month? Yeah, it it just doesn't, as Lisa, it doesn't have to come down to an either or. It's it's all of them together. We weren't right. Either or creates tensions, and we don't like tension. We like easy answers and ultimate resolve, and that's not always the healthiest thing for our spirituality. Bibi, question to you: um, Out of the five, dealing with the community, the body of Christ. Which one do you say that the body of Christ is more afraid of? Which one are we more afraid of as the body of Christ? Um, these two, I think. Now, I think because the Pentecostal movement has been so impactful in the last century, I think we have really, our first 50 years scared everybody to death. The last 50 years has really impacted, you know, um, the church. I think we're less scared of this one. Tradition, especially in the Protestant world, tradition is scary here. Um, and, and I want to explain something about tradition. When we talk, and this is a very important delineation. I talked about tradition last week, and I said tradition is the accumulated interpretation of all of this in the history of the church. That's a very broad definition of history. For my Catholic brothers and sisters, when they hear tradition, this is very important, they hear sacred tradition or a deposit 
of faith or a rule of faith. And I want to tell you why we're scared of this as Protestants. The early idea in the first four centuries of the church that there was a sacred tradition, a deposit of faith or a rule of faith, the point was there were some things told by Jesus to the apostles and by the apostles to the fathers of the church that weren't directly written down in Scripture. So there was sacred tradition and sacred Scripture. Not everything that we do is written down in Scripture, but everything we do is sacred and came with Je from Jesus. Now, I wanted to, you say, well, that's kind of a novel idea. It's not a novel idea. It's thoroughly Jewish. Because the Jewish people, our forebears, our ancestors, our Lord was Jewish. They had a written and an oral Torah. Now, all we've ever really talked about is the written Torah, right? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. You have a written Torah, written down, given to the community of faith. Not so for the Jewish people. They had a written Torah and an oral Torah, and Jesus subscribed to both. The oral Torah said that God told Moses some things that have been passed down orally. The written Torah says God wrote some things that have been passed down. So this is a thoroughly Jewish idea that the early church picked up on giving us sacred tradition and sacred scripture. My broader Protestant, Catholic, inclusive view of tradition is not simply that. It's more the accumulation of wisdom in the history of the church over time. So that's an important distinction. But I can tell you Protestants are scared to death of this, and that's why or we were scared to death of this. And I will tell you that the Catholic Church admits itself that in the 14th, 15th, 16th, and 17th century, there was a lot of bad stuff happening that was not corroborated by Scripture. And if you didn't find it in Scripture, it was very easy to say, well, that was passed on orally. And Luther looked at those abuses, and even the Catholic Church looked at those abuses and really pulled back this idea and said that can become a monolith in itself that's incredibly abused. Well, you know, why are we telling people that they got to pay this amount of money to get their family members out of purgatory and if they give it, we can build this? Well, we could rely on sacred tradition. So it's very abusable. I just got to tell you, every one of these is abusable. The quickest way to abuse them is to rely on one of them all by itself. But I, I think be you know, experience, experience coming from the Pentecostal background, my non-Pentecostal friend, and it's not just Pentecostals, the Pentecostals before the Pentecostals were the Catholic mystics in the monasteries. That kind of mysticism existed long before Pentecostalism. I mean, long before we were talking in tongues, they were seeing Mother Mary in Cinnabons. So there's mysticism, <laughs> been around for a long time. And I'm not, I'm joking a little bit. But this sense of the divine communicating with us supernaturally, paranormally, metaphysically, however you say it, um, what you hear pushback on, that's so subjective. I mean, I looked at the honey bun and I couldn't see her anywhere. And other people are falling out having a profound experience and they can't eat it. And I'm like, give it here. No, you put extra icing on it. Experience is subjective and it scares people. Tradition is very abusable. Who? Tradition is dangerous. Anybody been raised in a denomination? Tradition is dangerously abusable. You say, well, Protestants don't have traditions. Easter, Christmas, 
the way we do dedications. Those three questions I ask up here, you know what that is? That's tradition, very Protestant tradition in response to Catholic christening and baptism. You know where I got that? I didn't get it in Romans. It's tradition. We got all kinds of them. Yep. Michelle. Um, you kind of have spoken to it a little bit, but to I think it had to do with what I heard in the first comment about scriptures. Um, I think it scares a lot of Protestants to think that everything's equal with scripture because we've always been taught that scripture is the most important and that all of those other things, pillars, will never contradict scripture. Right. And I think what's important, kind of I've figured out as I've been hearing this, is that we have to always remember that we never, ever have pure scripture. We always have an interpretation. That, that's the point. And so as we hear the different things, it's not that scripture isn't important. It's that we're open to reinterpret. We've always believed in these things. It's just what, it's how we say it. Listen, I want you guys to know the church has never believed God will contradict God's self. This never contradicts this. Scripture doesn't contradict reason. Reason doesn't contradict experience. God doesn't say two things. But we don't have this purely. We have to interpret. And I want to take something really challenging here, and this takes it to a new level. When Peter experienced God telling him to eat a particular kind of animal that scripture he believed told him not to eat. Now here, it would be easy if all I had to do was tell you Peter's experience drove him to look at scripture and after reading Leviticus anew, they found out their kosher rules were wrong. That's the way it happens most of the time. If something comes to you through reason because God told you, come now, let us sit down and reason together. If something comes to you through a creative experience or an experience, if a voice or a dream comes to you. Right? Paul was scared of experience by itself. Paul said, if an angel teaches you anything other than what I've told you, he's a liar. Paul said, you watch out for experiences. So, so there's concern. But most of the time, we say Peter had an experience. It contradicted his interpretation of Scripture. After he sat down and understood the Scripture better, he found out in Leviticus you actually could eat those animals. Not true. It's tougher because the experience of the Word of God, the voice of the Spirit, it was a direct contradiction of the scriptural command. And that's tough. You say, but that was an Old Testament text. Okay, there is no distinction in the early church of an Old Testament subpar text with a New Testament elevated text. Do you know what the scripture was for the New Testament church, what the scripture was for Jesus? what we call almost pejoratively the Old Testament. There are times in the story, guess what? This story of Scripture getting contradicted, you know where we heard this story? 
You wouldn't even know this story if it weren't for Scripture. Scripture's brave. Scripture claims no monolithic status. Scripture teaches us all of these. But the experience Peter had was God telling him to eat animals that the Scripture, the biblical text of Jesus, said not to eat. When Paul and Peter talked about an inspired text, they were talking about Leviticus and the rest of the books. There are times in the leading and guiding of the Holy Spirit that you will feel absolutely appropriate as the community of faith to look at a scripture that says, do this. I know this is scary, but it's biblical. A text that says, don't eat that animal, God will tell the community of faith, eat that animal. The community of faith says, Scripture says it's unclean, it's an abomination. God says, don't you call anything unclean that I've called clean. Wait a minute. Scripture says, God said, I did call it unclean, and now I'm calling it clean. That is not contradiction. That is context. You don't have to rush to Scripture contradicts itself. Do you think in 2,000 years of leading people through different spaces and times that God would have to, because of the context, shift what sounds like a direct, you're already doing it. Every woman in this place who has cut hair or your head is not covered, you are doing exactly what I just talked about. Because in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul said, a woman cannot pray or prophesy in the church without a head covering. He then gives space interpretively that you can replace the head covering with your hair. But he said, if you're going to replace it with your hair, know this, a woman cannot cut her hair. For if a woman cuts her hair, it is a shame to her. Now, to all of my sisters with cut hair, to all of my sisters who have prayed today without a head covering, Somewhere in the last 2,000 years, and it did not happen in the United Pentecostal Church, I'll guarantee you that, <laughs> or the Amish or the Mennonite community, but somewhere in the last 2,000 years, the community of faith has had a reasonable experience of creative life that has caused them to look at the Scripture and say the context here. You say, well, but that's... Cor that's Corinth. You know, he was just talking about Corinth. No, Paul says it is a shame for a man to have long hair. And he said, nature itself teaches you that. That's not Corinth. That's nature. Paul said men should not have long hair. Women should not cut their hair. And every woman should pray with her head covered. Everybody's like, but that's context. I know. 
every denomination I know contextualizes somewhere. Not one of you come from a denomination that does not contextualize somewhere. The question is, why do we contextualize so inconsistently? And I would say, I think we contextualize where it's convenient to us. And all I'm calling for is a more consistent hermeneutic. 1 Corinthians 11 says women ought to have long hair, men ought to have short hair. Nature teaches that. Women ought to pray with their head covered. Men should pray with their head uncovered. Are these guys reprobates up here when they wear their little hats? 1 Corinthians 11. 1 Corinthians 11 also says God's the head of Christ. Christ is the head of man. Man is the head of woman. Eternal principle, context. We have always admitted this. 1 Peter 2, the guy that was involved in this down here, 1 Peter 2. Slaves, be submissive to your master even if they beat you without cause, for to this you were called. Context? Eternal principle? Contextualize. We contextualize all over the place. You contextualize. There's not a one of you in this room that doesn't contextualize. How do we contextualize? It's very easy. I'm going to put out a Bible before too long, and all the contextual parts are going to be highlighted in green. And you know how? Because the Lord told me which ones were context and which ones were... You, don't, you know why you laugh? Because that's ridiculous. The community, through a long, laborious, humble process, is ever about the business of trying to discern what is eternal, timeless principle and what is context that has to shift. And every woman with cut hair in this room, every one of you, Every liberated slave is grateful to the church's hermeneutic of context. So when Peter hears the Lord say, rise, kill, and eat, and Peter says, but the Bible says, God doesn't say what he says sometime, most of the time. No, that's not what the Bible says. You read it wrong. God says, I know. It's a different day. And that takes humility. And to our Catholic friends, Tradition, oh my gosh, can it ever be abused? Absolutely. But tradition is the valuable cumulative voice of the people of God wrestling with what is timeless and what is time-bound. And it's not easy. It's not easy. Brian, last one. And I said... You know, um, something that has eaten away at me for years is that as much as I am amazed and grateful that Christianity is contemporary and it is relevant, we still practice an ancient faith. Yeah. And being humble to... to uh, midrash and working things out and arguing things out, not in an ugly way, but debating and 
and looking for God in all places is much more in line with the ancient strains of our faith. And I think it would do us well, you know, you talk about tradition and being afraid of tradition. I think, well, I should just say it serves me well to stay connected to the ancient part of my faith that is rooted in mysticism, that is rooted in wandering, that is rooted in people that live in tents, and know that we are not a we are not a faith that was based in 1800s industrial revolution enlightenment or or the west when people say is your church a traditional or it's like you know now um liberal and conservative is worn out and then progressive was getting pretty good space and then hillary took progressive and ruined it for a lot of people um but people say are you guys a traditional or progressive and politics and religion are two completely different poles that do intertwine but i'll stay out of that one are you traditional or progressive listen the tradition of christianity is progressive revelation and if you want to find that out just read the history of the church but you don't have to read church history our deepest tradition is birthed out of jesus and the way Jesus treated the Old Testament Scripture and the way Paul treated the Old Testament Scripture gives us our interpretive lens by which we even read them. From the very beginning, we have had a gadfly saying, you've heard it said, but I say unto you. Search the Scripture, he said, for in them you think you have eternal life. But these are they which testify of me and your scholars in Scripture, and you've missed me by a million miles. Our tradition is progressive revelation, and it was the ministry of the hermeneutic of Jesus and Paul, and it's ours as well. What I just described is not grace point. What I just described is Again, de facto, how Christians everywhere have been living and how the Christian church has been operating. Whether we articulated it this way or not, it's the way that we've been operating. And when you guys put the numbers up here, you did no disservice to any of the mediums. But the numbers were telling. Experience one. And it would be interesting to do this at a Catholic church, an Orthodox church, a Church of Christ church. The numbers would be different, but I think the preachers and elders would be surprised in every one of them, just like some of you were surprised when you saw the numbers up here today. Put my email up on the screen, Mel. We're going to continue the conversation, and we're going to do it online. We've got Brian coming next week. That will stir up a lot of conversation. But I'm inviting you to another forum here at Grace Point. I want to see how this works. I would like every Sunday after the sermon for us to leave here and for you to email me questions, responses, you know, so what's all this mean, how you feel about it, and I'm going to wrestle with those for a couple of days, and Tuesday I'll send out a response trying to synthesize what the questions are, and what I would really like to happen is somewhere between your emails and my blog response, I would love for there to be a forum that begins to develop where you are conversing, and the monologue As one of the emails said, I heard a lot of talking, and I I get that. That's the format. I don't necessarily like this one the best. I would rather be sitting with everybody talking, but it's just kind of what we do in the church, and maybe that's even shifting. But I would love to create a forum, even online, 
where you guys are conversing with one another. So if you have questions, a lot of you had questions today and you weren't about to you know, have the microphone in your hand, but your questions are some of the best ones. Would you email them to me and I'll respond to them by Tuesday and we'll kind of see how that goes. God bless you. Go, you're dismissed.